Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hi there, I'm Tom Marvin, Technical Editor at Bike Radar and MBUK Magazine. In this two-part Bike Radar Meets podcast, I meet Sam Morris, a professional mountain bike guide since 1998, initially in Colorado and since 2000 in the French Alps, where his company Bike Village has built an enviable reputation. He is also the founding president of European Bike Guides, whose aim is to professionalise the role of the mountain bike guide. I've known Sam for 19 years now, having been a paying guest and a cook, providing food for Bike Village's guests one summer. The less said about the fish pie, the better. In this first part of the podcast, we talk about his journey to becoming a guide, what it takes, and the formation of European Bike Guides. Make sure you subscribe to the Bike Creator Podcast to make sure you catch the second part of our chat. Our chat took place on his balcony in the French Alps, so apologies that the sound quality isn't quite up to studio standard. Hello, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. I'm Tom Marvin, technical editor at Bike Radar and at MBUK magazine. With me in today's uh, Meets podcast is Sam Morris. He's been a professional mountain bike guide since 1998 and set up his own company, Bike Village, in the year 2000. Um, he was also the founding president of European Bike Guides, which is an association to effectively professionalise the uh, profession of bike guiding um, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. Um, I've known Sam for I think 19 years now. Um, I've been both a paying guest. I've also uh, cooked for Sam uh, back when uh, guests would come along uh, and I provided food uh, for his guests in a kind of, some of it was quite nice, some of it was, you know, uh, we won't talk about the fish pie. Um, but I want to talk to Sam today um, about kind of what it's like being a mountain bike guide in the Alps uh, and in general, um, how one could become a mountain bike guide, um, maybe the future of mountain bike guiding itself and where he sees the profession going, um, but also um, the European Bike Guides themselves. It's, it's a really interesting organisation um, which Sam has been involved in from the start. So we're definitely going to explore some of those. If you hear crickets in the background, it's because we're currently sat at about a thousand metres um, below the Les Arcs Ski Resort in France. Um, we've just completed the second half um, of Sam's Trans-Alp trip. Uh, it's called the Alpaca that goes uh, from Annecy via Briançon down to just outside of Nice. Uh, we just finished the, the, the southern half of that and we're now back at, at Sam's home uh, back in Lazark. So, Sam, welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Can I start off by saying, as a chef, Tom, <laughs> you were very biddable and diligent. I tried. Yeah. I tried very hard. Effort, 10 out of 10. <laughs> Everything else, maybe not quite a 10. <laughs> I, I, I'd say ach- achievement, a, a solid 7 at the very least. My courgette lasagna. Uh, we, had, we had a guest who lived in Italy. He was British, but he lived in Italy. And he did tell me that it was the best lasagna he'd ever eaten. There you go. Um, and I stand by my chocolate mousse as there well. There you go. <laughs> 10 years on. 10 years on. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Sam, thanks ever so much for, um, for well, sparing a bit of time, um, some herbal tea and a can of beer, which I think you'll probably hear cracking open later on. <laughs> but um, I sort of want to start, you know, how did you start um, your career? I mean, it is a career now, really. It's 22, 23 years yeah. uh, of guiding mountain bikes. It sounds like almost like the dream job. You get to ride bikes in the Alps with hopefully kind of cool people. It is, and it is absolutely my dream job. Um, we'll probably touch on later on for 
not at all the reason you just touched on mm-hmm. actually which is which is um sort of quite a common misconception with bike guiding being on bikes is is a wonderful is is an amazing part of it but what makes it really the best job in the world is being able to share that with people being able to sort of add to their experience and being able to really create kind of mastermind puppet master sometimes it mm-hmm. feels like trying to kind of you're trying to orchestrate perfect experiences for your clients and that's what makes it magical the fact that it happens on a bike is kind of by the by in in many respects mm-hmm. um but uh but it is for the record the best job in the world for sure yeah does that mean that maybe if you hadn't been a mountain bike guide you might have ended up in some sort of teaching profession i think so yeah i think that's all, all the good guides i've ever worked with are either still guides or they're still somewhere in a pedagogical kind of framework so they're sometimes they're now primary school teachers sometimes they've gone into general outdoor education but that's the passion that to me every good guide i've ever worked with has in common is that it's it's not a <laughs> like 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 lance armstrong said it's not about the bike um but uh it's also less about blood doping when it comes to guys <laughs> and, and to say more about the pedagogy and just the share, sharing that passion with other people mm-hmm. yeah. and so you started in 1998 in in colorado yeah, um, in Ridge, were, yeah. who were you guiding for what, what were you doing out there uh rocky mountain adventures okay. the company were called i uh i remember applying for they, they had an advert in the back of mbuk mm-hmm. at the time and uh, that was back in the days when there were about three companies that had adverts in the back of mbuk so um i wrote proper proper pen letters because <laughs> i didn't can you imagine I don't, it's, it's ridiculous i didn't have a computer i didn't have a mobile phone but i did have a pen so i wrote an, a, a genuine pen letter to all of them um asking for a job and by i'll be honest the only reason I think I got the job in Colorado was because by a, a trick of fate, um, I have an American passport mm-hmm. and it meant that my boss didn't have to sort out a visa for his summer worker. So he just he just gave me the job. So was that sort of the the main criteria for, um, <laughs> was, for getting the job? <laughs> there were, oh gosh, I hope he doesn't listen to this. There were very few criteria for that job. <laughs> I flew out to age 20. I flew to Denver one week ahead of my first guests um having never guided having never guided for well, for for like mountain bike clubs having done voluntary guiding for mountain mm-hmm. bike clubs so that was to be fair the sharing side of the kind of um of mountain biking was already part of my passion so i was pretty keen on that um i was looking at outdoor education at the time as something i wanted to get into and um but i pretty sure my boss wasn't interested in that at all mm-hmm. he was just i was just a quick solution to a problem he had that summer mm-hmm. and uh yeah so i flew out to flew out to denver one week ahead of my first guests having never been there in my life um hooked up with a kiwi guy called matt who i hope isn't listening to because he was supposed to show me all the trails and instead he just showed me his can i say that he's just got me really really stoned on the first night um, <laughs> excellent and basically sort of uh he was really useful on that side of things for yeah. the entire summer but as for trail knowledge he was pretty limited uh-huh. in his scope excellent fair to say yeah. and did you do that for two summers yep that was a, that was a, that was two, two summers out there and i mean a, a part of me could still be out there colorado is an amazing part of the world if ever anyone gets a chance to go there um but i was looking at setting up a 
are going to call it slightly more quality driven product mm-hmm. in terms of guiding. Um, but I had a huge amount of respect for the company that I worked for. And at the time, there were so few companies around. I wanted to stay away from the States because they kind of had that area sort of sewn up. Um, and I'd previously ridden in the French Alps and had a had an amazing time uh-huh. over here. And that's what drove you then in, in 2000 with your mate Stu to, from I mean, from the sort of stories I picked up, it was you sort of cruised out, found a valley you liked and yeah. had a go, right? Yeah, well, age, so it, was, it went back to age 17 or 18, finishing A-levels. My brother and my cousin and I had all saved up money on our Saturday jobs and spent a couple of months in the Morienne Valley, so just about 30 kilometers south of where we are now okay. and absolutely loved it just had that was my big that was the big eye opener i still remember the buzz of climbing up out of the town we were camping in up in the Morien, um on day one and just climbing and climbing and climbing having only ever mountain biked in britain before then and finding ourselves like 1500 meters above the town we were in and seeing it a tiny little speck in the valley mm. floor below us and I think at that point, something clicked and I mm-hmm. knew that that's where, yeah, I'm pretty sure at that point I knew that's where I wanted my life to be. Yeah. And <clears throat> the Morienne Valley, though, is great for biking, but really quite inaccessible. Um, and to be honest, what's kind of brought me to the Tarantas, where we are now, is the fact that in 1999, roughly, when I was doing all the research and setting up for this, EasyJet didn't yet exist or maybe had right. just set up yeah. and there's a TGV station in Borg St. Maurice. Uh-huh. A TGV station's not the word. Yeah, the railway station. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's good. Um, and I thought all of our potential future clients could uh, could come by train. Hmm. So, uh, so Foresight into a... 20, <laughs> 21 years later, I think four people have come by train <laughs> yeah. in all that time and three of them work for work for British Rail or other rail companies so we're going to get free. So um, so train hasn't quite been the... Hasn't taken off. No, 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 no. But uh, but EasyJet did take off, yeah. luckily. So, yeah, so with a lot of flights to Geneva. That's, that side of things. Very handy. Yeah. And we're looking back at um, sort of 2000, what, um, obviously we'll talk about sort of how bikes have developed over time, I think a little bit later on, but what were you riding back then? You know, we're... we're, we're I was riding a Lightspeed Obed Titanium Hardtail uh-huh. with a set of RockShox SIDs on the front, 28.6mm stanchions mm-hmm. that I had triple bushed. Um, so you could, at the time, like you just, your, your forks would start flapping after like a couple of months riding them. So you could you could stick a double set of bushes into mm-hmm. them. Um, and it'd stiffen them up a little bit, like sort of a bit like cooking your spaghetti a little bit, a bit more al dente. So I think that's roughly where we're at. And then if you triple bush them, you could turn them into veritable linguine. <laughs> and um, and I think those forks, that bike, man, it used to do something like those forks did over a million meters of descending. I think really? we worked out once. It was ridiculous. Like they they took it. It was awful. It's a terrible bike. Yeah, I've still got it. Um, I've kind of done it up slightly to its former glory and I never ride it because it is absolutely, absolutely ill-adapted to the terrain that we have. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of what we knew at the time. It was either downhill bikes or cross country bikes. And it wasn't, there really wasn't that much in between. And I guess down this way, the infrastructure for mountain biking maybe was less developed than it is now. So you're not going to be pedaling a downhill bike up 
and out. Exactly that. Exactly yeah. that. There's a few chairlifts open. Um, I'll be honest, when we set up, we just couldn't afford a minibus and trailer. We had we were running on no money. I was outside the bike season, working simultaneously, running a guest house, working in a wine shop, and ro- working for a comedy apres ski activity, donut descent, sliding wow. sliding down pieces on rubber inner tubes. This I did not know. There you go. So like all out out with the uh, season, and then doing building work as well. I was working from 6 a.m. till just before midnight in other jobs to sustain the mountain bike side mm-hmm. of things. Um, but uh, but the infrastructure, you're right, didn't exist nearly to the degree at the time. There were some lifts that were open, but there were no pre-built trails mm-hmm. at all. So we were just riding, to be honest, pretty similar natural yeah, single yeah. track to what we do now, just on flat-barred gravel bikes. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I first came out in... 2003, I think, would have been my first trip to this area. And Marin Pine Woods? Marin Pine Mountain. Pine Mountain. Yeah, yeah. Oh, with um, Woods and then Pine Mountain. They were the models. That was yeah. it, yeah. No, I had um, oh, some Hope Mono Brakes on it, so discs, <laughs> yeah. And I had a pearlescent paint job. And I think Mazoki Marathon forks with an ETA lockdown function. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, mountain. And I got um, I got an LX group set for Christmas and my birthday for my parents. Um, so I was running on LX back in the day. Those were the days. Um, when, 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 oh, no, when bikes were awful. When bikes were, yeah. When bikes were awful, yeah. yeah. But, it, you know, good times. And we, we always had a thing where, you know, like it was a, you had your saddle up. Obviously, there's no drop posts. We'd have a comfort inch if we were going to traverse. And if someone wanted to drop a saddle, there's always a little bit of a... Well, and I used to have, if you remember, a free accessory I developed myself Yeah. Um, that I'd, I'd pre-make for guests before we came riding, which was a old used gear cables and electric wiring dominoes that you use for, mm-hmm. uh, for, for, what, for your wiring in the house. Um, a nut string, we used to call it, so that you could attach it to your seat clamp and up to your saddle rail so you could find the right height. You could drop your saddle... It, it took the hesitation out of dropping yeah, yeah. the saddle because you could find the right height again yeah. straight away. Um, it, as it happens, this is a tangent that we never even planned for. But um, <laughs> my my girlfriend's dropper post is too long for her bike, and so we've we've done one of these <laughs> on her made, dropper so that the made. dropper doesn't extend all the excellent, way. Up. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> yeah, it's there very good. Go. It lives on. Um, so it's fair to say that back in you know 2000 and, and around that time, you didn't have any um, guiding qualifications. Um, what? How did sort of things start to change in in that regard? Before you know, before we sort of do talk about European bike guides, like was there a point um, in the early mid two thousands or a little bit later on that you felt that actually qualifications or like some structure towards guiding was perhaps a, a good idea? Absolutely, yeah. And right from the start, as soon as the qualifications appeared, I've never kind of. Some people are quite reluctant to go on the training courses. It's quite interesting, and I've I've had to. I've had to suck up an awful lot of training courses over the mm-hmm. years. But what I've learned in that time is that you always pick up loads of useful stuff from every single one that you do. And you should, if you're a professional and you're interested in doing the best job you can, you should be interested in knowledge sharing is what mm. we talk about. I didn't kind of call it that at the time, probably. But the chance to meet with other people that work in your profession and share your good practices has always been one of the most positive things you can you can do for your working life. Um, so yeah, no, it's true in 98, man, there was, 
be Dan Cook and the OTC, there would have been in England, the Off-Road Training Consultancy, I think it would have been called at the time, um, and which morphed through the years and um, sort of these people are all still involved in, in mountain bike training, actually a lot of the people from those early days. Um, but the training schemes kind of cropped up. They became more popular in the early 2000s, I think. And the first one I did was the Scottish Mountain Bike Leader Award. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually flew back to Scotland at the time. I kind of regret that I didn't do the French qualification at the time. That was the early 2000s. They just launched their own one then. Um, and I shied away from it at the time because back then it wasn't mountain bike specific. It involved all cycling disciplines mm-hmm. so you did a load of track cycling and bmx things that would actually be really good fun yeah, at yeah. the time but if i'm honest it was just that it took a year and i mentioned just a minute ago i was working all the all the jobs in the world to kind of subsidize the company out mm-hmm. of season so i just couldn't afford to do it that way um so but as soon as they cropped up i would travel back to scotland um and do my training mm-hmm. do my training there and it was it was always, yeah, such positive experiences to meet fellow professionals and really kind of, I don't know, just I can't, can't think of the right words, but get together and just yeah, sh- yeah. share your best ideas, steal other people's good ideas. That's yeah. what you do. You watch other people working, doing your job, and you steal their good ideas. That's what it is. But the, at this point, there, there was no sort of mandatory sort of reason to do it was was it more for your own sort of development interest or was there a real professional reason for doing it so well this interestingly we'll get onto this with the european thing mm-hmm. it depends it changes country to country depending on where you work so if right. you want to work with adults in britain at the moment there is still no legal requirement to have a qualification now that doesn't mean if you have an accident um with a with a somebody who's paying you for your services it doesn't mean you're not going to get into a lot of trouble in uh-huh. court but there is nothing, you know, you can't, you know that you're not allowed to drive a car without a driving license. Mm-hmm. Well, there is nothing to say that you are not allowed to teach a mountain bike lesson without a mountain bike guide instructing qualification. Right. Um, whereas in France, quite early on, they, it became incorporated into their legislation. The French are quite strong for that, for creating good legal frameworks for, for their sports instruction. Um, so, I mean, I'll be honest, for a few years, I guided in the grey area that is that we were providing accommodation, transfers and all sorts of kind of a a whole package Mm -hmm. and the guiding was only part of it. Mm -hmm. And so for a few years there, I kind of just worked in the grey area where we called our guiding a complimentary service. Um, Okay. And that was that was dodgy, you know, it wasn't wasn't, it, it wasn't it wasn't right. That's how but it's kind of when you start working before there is a legal framework, mm-hmm. that's kind of how things pan out as soon as we could, we set it right. But I assume all the other operators, cause you know, like you, you, you're not the only people to run like a, a, a British orientated mountain bike guiding holiday yeah. company in, in the Alps. It was, an, it was, and it was an interesting time. Like one of the first legal ways for British leaders to become legal in France was to do a walking qualification, the right. uh, international mountain leader i think it's called in the uk over here it's equivalent to the accompaniator of moyen montagna which is like a tour guide walking guide thing but they do have a prerogative they're allowed to lead bicycle rides mm-hmm. as well generally of an, well, it's understood that it's not of a technical nature and, and the laws have changed again since then but at the time the only legal way 
to and we're pushing on towards kind of 2008 2009 at this point the only legal way to be able to work in france on british qualifications was to do so was a walking guide mm-hmm. who happened to be taking out mountain bikers um you could then you could do your walking qualification tag on the mbla or one of the british um bike guiding quals and between those two you'd be legally okay it's just you've kind of i don't know it was it wasn't the path i chose because it, yeah. it was it's kind of a backdoor approach and it just I've only ever been a mountain bike leader. That's all mm-hmm. I wanted to do. I didn't want to have to learn how to lead snowshoe and walking yeah. trips in order to coach and guide mountain biking, mm-hmm. which is my passion. Did you did you find as you were sort of developing your own sort of professional skills and, and knowledge that you would see, you know, other sort of other guides maybe doing things in different ways and in, in positive or negative ways? You know. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, and I mean. As I'm back to stealing ideas of other mm. people. You see other people working, and sometimes it blows your mind, and it's be- like beautiful. They'll have a whole different approach to something you've never, you've never quite had a grasp on, and it's it completely inspires you. What you would see a lot of at the time, though, as well, out especially out here in the French Alps, was British. I'm going to call them gap year kids. Yeah. Um, who. Th- could ride and therefore thought they could lead rides and mm-hmm. thought there was nothing wrong with that. And that caused a massive amount of resentment here amongst the professionals, French, British and international, whatever nationality they happen to be, to kind of have a job that you're proud of, that you've made your life's work mm-hmm. and to see a cocky 19-year-old who can talk the talk, turning up, not putting anything back into the area that they're guiding in and just taking people out riding cash in hand. Mm-hmm and really bringing down the reputation of your profession really setting you back is kind of hurt me as much as it hurt i mean it it kicked off in the uk press there was some coverage back at the time about um about it was and that was more something that happened over up in the port de soleil kind of morzine leger area um where they'd actually then have the gendarmes the police turning up to arrest people that were guiding illegally Mm -hmm. um so it kind of had been a bit grey, but then I guess people were getting pissed off, and it became black and white. Exactly, and analog yeah. analog became digital, and yeah. you could either be one or zero. So it was time to become one at that point. I, I guess from like a UK perspective, certainly, sort of back then in the you know early mid noughties and that, it was from a UK side of thing, it seemed like it was just a way to sort of have a bit of a time out and have a bit of fun, but actually it was already being professionalized in Europe. And therefore, you know, with, you know, there's a strong history of alpinism in, in France and the Alps with mountain guides and all that sort of thing. And they felt they were having their toes tread on sort of thing. Absolutely. And they've got a real passion here for quality and professionalism mm. to kind of, it's, I mean, it's a bit, and imagine it's because you kind of can turn it on its head. Over here, we're currently sitting on the terrace of a half renovated house, which I'm allowed to work on myself. I've done a lot of work in the building industry, but there's no building inspector turning up to check what I've done. Um, You can kind of do what you want. And in Britain, that would seem absolutely crazy that I could renovate an entire house and never have somebody visit to Mm. make sure my work's up to scratch. Um, So if you take the building industry in Britain and imagine people turning up sort of un unqualified unqualified, unregulated completely and unregulated is the main thing completely unqualified 
and unregulated doing an awful job that was actually causing accidents and mm-hmm. that did happen a lot um then there'd be a bit of an outrage and that's what happened here you know it's 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 sort of it's 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 quite a misunderstood it's quite a misunderstood thing with what happened out here that the focus among the locals really wasn't the fact that it was going to destroy the industry mm-hmm. that everybody worked in if a load of people turned up and just delivered shit quality work you mm-hmm. know, use the yeah we can the mildest of my uh, of my expletives like um it was it was it mo- the people that I spoke to that were really worried about it. They were just worried because it was just bringing the industry down. Uh-huh. Um, imagine, you- imagine somebody launched a bike onto the market that hadn't been tested and didn't mm-hmm. meet the CE safety standards and was essentially dangerous, mm-hmm. but you, still totally available to buy. But totally available because it was cheaper than everybody else. Yeah. Um, because the company wasn't paying tax, you'd want them taken out of the market as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, that's that's a lot of what happened in France. Do you think it was it drove down wages and things as well? And do you think it created unfair competition because it was unqualified? Or it does, yeah. And this is where I suspect like some comments might start flicking up below hmm. below the podcast. I don't know, but um, it's uh, the wages thing is an interesting recurring theme I've had because because over the years working on the European project that I have, I've helped a lot of British guys get their equivalents in. In France, and the ones that have got there have been really professional and really worked towards it and really deserve it. But I've also had a lot of sort of on spec inquiries from people that believe they're entitled to equivalents just because they've done some guiding mm-hmm. in the UK, might have a short qualification, might not have anything, and think they they it's always the same kind of rhetoric. They just want to work and just want to be free to work. And I always ask them the same question: Why do you want to work in France? Then? Mm-hmm. And the answer is always the same. Well, I can earn a living here. Like you've got the best pay in the world for mountain bike guides. And I say, yeah, we've got the best pay in the world for mountain bike guides. And we've got the longest, most rigorous training scheme for mountain bike guides Mm -hmm. in the world. Do you think that's a coincidence? Yeah. And it's not. Yeah. It's, it's causative. You know, it's because there's a rigorous long training scheme and a high, highly valued reputation as professionals amongst the public that you can then charge the amount that you can, which isn't ridiculous. It's the, mm-hmm. the same as I earn when I work as a carpenter. It's not like yeah. you're, you're not creaming it hand over fist, but it's a correct. It means that Ollie, my guide that's worked for me for 10 years, can pay his mortgage from guiding. Yeah. It means you can actually set up sustainably as a guide, which means you can invest. You can really personally and professionally invest in doing the job as best as you can. Mm-hmm. And that that's why I think that's why I think it's important. Well, let's move on to European bike guys then. So this was set up, you, you went to the IMBA Europe conference. Am I right? You have to correct me on my history here. Um, in 2014. Um, and yeah, it was kind of a follow on. So from the IMBA Europe conference that yeah. year, um, some of the French and the Swiss, um, so Julien Huberfet is the guy in France and Claude Balsiger, a guy in Switzerland mm. who now develops ski uh, mountain biking destinations quite often in ski resorts and Mark Torsius, the uh, extremely lovely Dutch kind of head of Imbi Europe uh, were talking and talking about the need for mountain bike guide instructors across Europe to get together and meet so off the back of that they arranged a Claude mostly arranged a meeting in Davos in Switzerland 
for just an open a round table discussion for mountain bike guides there was no agenda at the time there mm-hmm. was just an idea why don't we get professionals together from all the countries that contain professionals in europe and just see what comes out of it okay and you ended up um going along to this meeting uh making your thoughts known <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. i was sort of yeah that that all turned out quite unplanned it was uh i was kind of like the jester that ended up kind of uh running the court i suppose it uh-huh. was uh i was invited along by julian seb the french representatives because they really didn't speak much english so i was the little sort of uh i was the translator basically mm-hmm. i was the court jester i was just there to say what the french wanted to say and um the problem being that I do, you may have picked up, feel quite passionately about the subject. Have you got opinions on things? I do. Well, guiding especially is my it's my life's yeah, work. Course, you know, yeah. it's absolutely it's my opus. It's it's I've devoted my entire life to doing it and doing it as well as I can, and I feel so so passionately about it that that I'm a gobshite. I think on, yeah. a, on it for sure and um apologies if this runs to two podcasts not one because <laughs> i just it's something i feel so passionately about and i quickly kind of uh hopped from translating to sort of inputting a little bit mm-hmm. more and um somehow kind of came out of it a couple months later as um sort of the founding president of the 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 resultant association that was created out of the kind of uh the basis of what we talked about at that roundtable meeting. Yeah. So it strikes. So when we were chatting about this before we started recording, you know, European Bike Guides is, is now what it's called, and the the idea is to uh, create a certification for top level guides. So it's not necessarily every guide out there, but you know, the the, the top level ones maybe who are in charge. Well, yeah, I, that's I guess. it. At the moment, yeah, we've stuck. We've kept our remit for the for the time being, and it may change in the future. To the very top level, the kind mm-hmm. of uh, no, I'm definitely not going to make a Top Gun analogy because <laughs> that's horrific. But um, but basically, what we're trying to do is bring up that top level of of professionals in mm-hmm. Europe, whilst letting countries decide how they want to train the people at lower levels. So we don't want to dictate how their guide training has to run. Uh, typically a country might have three levels for example they have a level one guide which is people volunteers working with bike clubs a level two guide which might be people taking out slightly higher level sort of into actual off-road terrain but without that much skills coaching for example and there may be a level three where there's a lot more skills work Mm -hmm. and then you might pass on to the european level and the reason for not interfering too much at the exact structure of the lower levels for now is that different countries have got different needs. So weirdly in, for example, in Slovenia, um, a lot of the kind of lower level work is tour guides on gravel roads. Mm -hmm. So what they need to know more about is the guiding side of things where they're looking at group dynamics, they're looking at road safety. Um, They've got to cover some mechanical knowledge, yeah, but they're essentially, they're not delivering much technical information. Whereas in Norway, they've got a lot of people working in ski resorts, coaching people on purpose-built trails, where it's mostly technique work. Mm -hmm. And so in one country, a level one might be a skills instructor. In another country, a level one might be a tour guide. Yeah. Um, So we kind of leave that up to the countries to kind of respect the individual cultures and needs of each country. 
but with the understanding that once you get up to the top of the pyramid, we're kind of the point that you're aiming for. Sure. You, you've talked about um, a certification for top-level guides um, with what's called an EPC, or European Pro Certificate. Is that right? Professional card. Professional card, sorry. Yeah. And so that's something that um, nurses have, mounting guides have. Not many professions have, and, and it's basically a... Uh, well, yeah. Can you explain what that is? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of our it's our end end point in terms of the qualification, I think, and it's um it's the kind of the, the nirvana for a for a very heterogenic is that heterogeneous 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 yeah I'm going to use French words heterogeneous heterogeneous that'll work fine um across different countries because you know we, when we came into this project. Between the different countries, we had um, Austria had a guiding qualification and took 14 hours okay. to, to get. And France had a guiding qualification that took 1,200 hours. Um, mm. So I think that just about qualifies as an order of magnitude of difference, yeah. doesn't it? Even in, like, in technical terms, that is an order of magnitude, I think. Again, Two orders of magnitude, well, maybe. Welcome to yeah, comment yeah, yeah. on it. But, uh, but that's how kind of spread out a thing was. Whereas the European professional card... Like, as you rightly said, nursing has it, high mountain guides, the UIAGM have got it. Um, and that was a massive achievement of theirs. And it means that when, for mobility, for people working in the, in the industry, it means when you qualify in your own country, you can just automatically work in every other country. Isn't, you don't have to take an equivalence. No equivalence, exactly. You'll still have to register because the basis, and this is something that a common misconception is that you'll be able to just slip across borders and secretly work. And that's not the point at right. all. The whole point of this is that any given moment, we know who's working in any given country, that mm -hmm. we know the state of our profession because mm -hmm. we're the custodians of that profession. Um, so it's kind of up to us to keep tabs on who is where. But that if a if an Italian mountain bike guide qualifies, would be great. They're not in the scheme yet. That's all a right. separate kind of issue. But... But, uh, but hopefully we'll be soon. We'll see how we go. Um, would qualify, and they wanted to run a chip in, trip in Slovenia. Well, then they'd be able to do that. Uh -huh. Although I'll get onto that coming back as get well. Get onto that, yeah, yeah. So how many countries are involved at the moment then? Uh, we've got about eleven countries now involved. To varying, well, I mean, you could be up to about fifteen depending on how, how you define it. sort of uh, how the involvement's going. But uh, and in those countries where we're going, some of them, where for the European professional card, we need nine European countries who specify in their national law that uh, European bike guide level qualification is legally required mm -hmm. in order to exercise the profession of mountain bike guide. Okay. Um, and that's kind of the stepping stone. It may have even dropped to five. And so in, in exceptions, you can drop to five European law is a little bit less exciting than mountain bike guiding. Mm -hmm. So I tend to skim slightly more over the details there. Um, and so we've got those countries involved most of them it's a voluntary it's often a voluntary system like in Britain as well mm -hmm. you, you're not legally obliged to have the qualification before you work but if you want to have insurance like it's working in Holland at the moment actually the main insurance companies in Holland are now starting to require okay. a European bike guide level qualification so it's like a de facto requirement to have it if you want to have any liability insurance sure. Um, and from there, it's a kind of short stop to get it enshrined into legislation as well. Yeah. So that's the move within the individual countries is to get it brought into their actual legislation. Mm -hmm. And from there, we can take it on on a European regulation. 
so it's very much there's like a legal framework behind all this am i right in remembering that you've you've gone to court with at some point european did you go to the european court at some point no that, i never did for equivalents and stuff yeah. is this or oh, that was going back it was interesting that was so that was pre that was pre um this was back when stuff was kicking off over in the port de Soleil. right okay um yeah. and there were kind of it seemed like there were two options one of which was to kind of say well we're qualified in one european country x european country mm-hmm. now um <laughs> And so we should be able to work wherever we want. And that argument works great if you're working in a regulated industry. If you're an electrician, that works fantastically. Sure. Um, the problem is it's hard to apply that argument when there's actually no regulation in the country that you qualify from mm-hmm. because literally anyone can set up a training scheme. Okay, anyone can give a badge saying you're a, you're a guide now. My kids draw great certificates. <laughs> they could have been drawing certificates for friends. Like yeah. that, that's what the situation was. Right. Um, the fact that you're legally allowed to do it in a country with no legal requirements mm-hmm. for people that do it doesn't really hold much weight. Um, and at the time, I kind of, I'm a bit confrontation aversive as well, to be mm-hmm. honest, that's partly my personality. But um I just decided to sort of suck it up and go to French bike school. So that was me. And you did that 1,200-hour course? Yeah, so I did the 1,200-hour course. And I think I think I was the first Brit to do it. I don't know. Maybe there were some that had done the previous version, which was a bit shorter. But I was definitely the first Brit that any of my tutors had come across. Um, so I sucked up a year of living in my van mm. on a fluo-lit car park on a random sort of... Uh, I could, Describing the uh, the uh, it's in Voiron on the edge of Chartreuse where okay. uh, where the monks make as quite a, bit, a fun spirit a bit like they like to do in Britain sort of trying to spare spare their souls by sending as many others to hell as they can and uh, I lived in a car park outside this training college essentially and uh, and worked there and during that time it get like I've said all these training processes are, end up positive in the end yeah there was, yeah there was an awful lot of work that i sort of that i covered before and other things but it was still super interesting and i became really good friends and colleagues over that period with the trainers that were running the course and they kind of got it was nice because it showed them that brits could be perfect until Mm -hmm. then we were the cowboys we were the ones that didn't want to get qualified didn't want to pay tax didn't Mm -hmm. care about standards just wanted to take the money and run and by the end of it we were colleagues, you know, mm-hmm. I was working training on the court, but before I qualified, I was a trainer on the course. And it's, um, it was such a positive, well, a trainer. I helped them out sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I've maybe overstated that, but, uh, but it started to be it very quickly. We're all mountain bikers. That's a lovely thing. When people talk about attitudes between countries, they forget that, Oh, maybe I go a bit like sort of misty eyed here. But we're all mountain bikers, and that's more important. Genuinely, that's more important than national boundaries. Mm-hmm. A French mountain biker has more in common with a British mountain biker than he does with a French investment banker. You know, yeah. like I, you, you always have more to talk about with a group, an international group of mountain bikers, than you would with a randomly selected group of people from your own from your own country, your mm-hmm. own town, or your own street, probably. Yeah. Um, so it sounds like France has sort of been fairly well towards the forefront of uh, professionalising the guiding, you know, as an industry. Am I right in thinking that when it comes to the European bike guides, it's France has played a major role in, in its creation and its sort of 
continuation going forward. Yeah, definitely. And, it, and it's, it's, a, it's a funny misconception. Like when I was president, um, I so often get emails and the, the real common, um, we've developed a term for it with my French colleagues, which is just French bashing. It's what it, they, there's so much French, Frenchy bashing that mm. goes on in the whole thing. And almost every e- email would end with, are the French going to accept this when it's finished? And I'd reply, I'd be like, the French are paying my, the French are paying me to write this email to you. Like the yeah. France have bankrolled. There's been people that have put in sort of so many people have put in their hearts and souls to this project. And we've done most of it. When I say they're paying me, I think over the course of the first five years, I worked out how much it was and it was th- 30 euros a day was my daily rate. <laughs> but I, this was, it was kind of, but for all of us involved, there was kind of the original countries, which were like Switzerland, France. Oh my Lord. I hope I don't forget any um, Slovenia, Poland, Holland. Ooh, that better be about it. I think we were all working. We were all working voluntary on a voluntary basis. We were all, as I say, we had real trouble with the European funding mm-hmm. because when we came to get refunds, we'd been sleeping in vans in random forests and just trying to claim back our fuel money. That was all we were trying to get back. But they wouldn't believe us offer our fuel money because there was no hotel bill at the end of it. And mm-hmm. trying to explain to the European Commission that you were all sleeping in your vans, it, it's not really <laughs> a concept that they that they get too much. Um, sorry, I don't even know where I was there, but uh, we were <laughs> kind of on one with it. Where, where, where do you sort of see this whole thing? I, I think we'll move back towards sort of you and your, your career um, and, and what you sort of think going forward you, you want to see and, and also uh, it'd be good to sort of know how to become a guide but finishing uh, on the European bike guides where, where do you sort of see it going other than the the EPC um, this pro card you know like where, where do you want it to go other than the EPC it's sort of that's kind of an in industry that's the inside yeah. kind of goal to it what I'd love to see. There's a few things that I'd love to see. Um, oh, this could all go misty island quite long again. There, there could be island. there could be many tangents. There could <laughs> be many tangents. I'd love to see man bike lessons in schools more often. Uh-huh. Um, that ties in a massive. I mean, this is almost off topic, but getting into schools is how we're going to get diversity in mountain biking as mm-hmm. well. We're awful. Like we have to stand back and take a look at our industry, and we're the worst. Like in yeah. kind of in on a modern sort of any measurable scale of diversity we score horrifically mm-hmm. um so that i think by getting in getting mountain biking taught at a younger age funded much better and all this relies on there being a network it relies if we want to get into schools it's got to be easy for education authorities to organize mountain biking mm-hmm. and if it's going to be easy it's got to be a regulated insurable activity that people aren't scared of yeah and at that point you don't want your mate jed who's freaking awesome on a bike to be teaching a group of school kids Mm -hmm. you want a dedicated professional who's probably got a master's in outdoor education or something um who lives and breathes breathes pedagogy to be teaching your kids really safely and competently Mm -hmm. giving a wider variety of kids a real passion for the sport you know we love it but most of us got into it through We've been from quite well-off families. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, it's not how many. There's so many other sports. When you talk to the current champions, and they discovered it at school because somebody gave them the equipment, mm-hmm. and that's got to start happening with mountain biking. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that's a real big thing. And I think 
our organization, the European Bike Guides, actually has a pretty key role to play in that because it kind of creates the framework through which that can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want your kids to learn to swim, you get a swimming instructor. Yeah. If you want your kids to learn to play tennis, you get a tennis instructor. Like I say, if schools want to lay on sports, they get in touch with a sort of a local authority, that they a local association, and they know that the instructors are professional and they mm-hmm. know that it's insured and they know that it's safe for the people taking part. Um, so uh, I actually wrote down some answers to this. Like I, th- I, thought yeah, about, I thought about what I wanted. It was... Um, because it is, it's such a big question to me. Um, I want being a mountain bike instructor guide, I'm going to use that term because there's those kind of two mm-hmm. sides to it. I want it to be a legitimate career choice for mm-hmm. people. I want it to be something which it is currently in France and it's getting there in other countries. I want it to be something you can pay a mortgage on. It may, might not, it will never be a mortgage on the biggest house on yeah, the block, yeah. but you should be able to live off mm-hmm. your wages as a mountain bike instructor guide if you're good. Mm-hmm. Um, if you've if you've gotten your qualifications and if you put the work and if you're passionate about it, essentially, um, there's another thing I like more things. I like a bit like in golf. Do you know anyone that plays golf? Mm. They all do like two days a year with a local golf pro. Yeah. yeah. Well, every club. club has a pro, right? Every club has a pro. Mm. Um, and I'd like every mountain biker to spend one or two days a year mm-hmm. with an instructor working on their skills how much would it cost compared to the kind of the latest piece of plastic that you bought for your bike um it's such a minuscule investment and yet it brings such huge rewards and i would like to see mountain bikers like as a as a skills instructor and i'm sure if there's any others listening to this they'll they'll feel exactly the same when i'm coaching kids or complete beginners it's a joy mm-hmm. because you can just teach them the right thing to do, <laughs> the right things to do from the start and they pick it up so, so quickly. Yeah, yeah. But the reality is that 90% of my job is unteaching bad mm-hmm. habits that have been brought in by 20 years of riding completely uninstructed. I think you, you've you've tried to unteach plenty of my bad habits <laughs> and a lot of them so, still. So many. <laughs> and, I'm, 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 and that's like a continued journey with myself as well. I still trying yeah, to yeah. teach my own bad habits. Yeah. But man, it's so much fun when you get a group of school kids yeah. and you try and teach them a good, a good kind of shape on the bike mm. and they just ride off doing it straight yeah, yeah. away. I mean, last week we were riding and, you know, one of the other sort of guests on the week, Lindsay, was we spent, you know, you were sort of talking her down a section of trail, which was, you know, switchbacks or hairpin corners um, and, te- you know, like making sure her belly button was pointing in the right direction to sort of turn, twist the hips and all this sort of stuff. And it's stuff that you've been telling me literally for nearly 20 years now. Yeah. And I rode down behind you two guys, you know, sort of backing off. Didn't want to sort of put pressure on, on Lynn's sort of practicing stuff, but like consciously being like, ah, oh, shit, I need to do that. Yeah. And, and it, you know, I can get around a corner, a lot, not every corner, but a lot of corners, but it's still having that reminder of sort of that technique of what is the best technique to do it. The more you get it drilled into, the more likely you have to do it. But it's such a valuable thing you just said as well. Like, I think it's, I'd love people to get into their minds. What you did there by following us down a little bit slower than you normally ride Mm. was create a nice, safe learning environment for yourself. And there's so many so many people want to instantly apply what they learn to the top end of their riding without realizing that to do that, you're going to have to back off and mm-hmm. just give your brain the processing space to integrate these new ideas, new skills, new feelings, new sensations into your riding. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that, I mean, it's that thing with skills instruction. 
because I mean, and especially riders reach a level where they think they don't need it anymore. Yeah, yeah. And a minute, so Aaron Grimm has a skills coach. Mm. What the fuck's your excuse? Yeah. Like, sorry, that's definitely a word I shouldn't <laughs> use. But it's yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, if he if he's got a skills instructor, none of us have an excuse. And it's and it's um it's a, it's another funny misconception with the with the profession as well. People often say, "Oh, do you ever get riders that are better than you?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, of course. Like I'm like a mediocre middle aged man. Like it's, <laughs> it happens to be very very regularly, but that doesn't mean you don't have an awful lot to offer them. And I'm pretty certain that Aaron Gwynn's skills coach isn't faster than mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that his analysis isn't like essential to to his progress you yeah know? um so it's uh yeah just i'd like i'd like getting days coaching mm-hmm. skills coaching to be part of people's practice mm-hmm. and i'd also like getting bigger trips guided to be part of people's practice as well you know it was it was a funny thing that happened like 15 years ago when gps technology started coming in i remember reading articles when trail forks was mm-hmm. first, first popping up about the fact that guides wouldn't be needed pretty soon yeah and i'm like man if you think that the guide's just there to show you which way to go you've only ever worked with a really really poor guide mm-hmm. um it's the value adds none of them are about knowing the mm-hmm. actual like any idiot cannot get lost on a trail. Sometimes I get lost. As yeah, a yeah. Caveat. Um, go, go temporarily the wrong way. <laughs> but your value adds in terms of the experience you're giving to people and nothing to do with just saying turn left here, turn right there. Mm-hmm. It's all about, it starts from before the ride ever starts. It's, it's the sleepless nights I spend trying to pick the routes that are going to best match, not just the skill level, but actually what people are looking for, mm-hmm. like, what the vibe is of the group. It's about, then matching the experience on the trail it's about sort of it's it's all that puppet puppet mastery like i say it's about orchestrating this experience this holistic experience which is just per- perfect for people mm-hmm. sometimes it's about knowing which place to stop off to buy the local cheese when yeah, you're riding yeah. that's going to be open because they're your neighbors and you've talked to them over the years and they're going to stay open for you because they know your clients are kind of quite into that stuff it's a stupid little thing it feels mm-hmm. like a stupid little thing except it also feels awesome when you're kind of you've just ridden through mountains and now you're eating the produce of those mountains mm-hmm. as well it's 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 in all those little things and it's in the little bits of skills instruction that you add to the day to a group that maybe weren't ever looking for skills instruction but suddenly find that they're riding way way better because of a few little insights you've yeah. been able to kind of share with them um so i guess but i'm not entirely unbiased am i but yeah changes i'd like to see is is people in my job getting loads more work yeah that was the first part of my chat with sam morris if you've not yet subscribed please do so to ensure you don't miss the second part of our chat where we talk about the changes he's seen in mountain biking over the years and the potential impact of e-bikes as well as all future bike radar podcasts thank you for listening to the bike radar podcast if you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling check out bikeradar.com